Has anybody noticed all of the opportunities lately to watch basketball? <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's absolutely everywhere and a lot of fun. I was watching a game last night and, and there was an upset and uh, it was exciting to watch the underdog uh, celebrate success, but it was hard to see those that anticipated that they would win just come down to crushing defeat. In fact, the camera uh, moved towards a young lady who was playing her flute in the band of apparently the team that had lost, and there were just tears streaming down her face. I mean, it's, a, it's really remarkable, exhilarating, the highs and the lows of it. And no doubt there are people that are just filled with ultimate joy and great grief in it. But what concerns me is that when uh, in the lives of those people we see on the screen is what those stories are like and, and what it meant to them to either succeed or to fail. There are those who grew up playing basketball and it has become their life to them. I am a basketball player. You know what that's like. They dream when they put their first shot in as a little kid of being there in the Sweet 16 or the Final Four of the National Championship shooting that last, minute, that last shot. But just the high stakes that's a part of it when one attaches their identity to it. When my life is defined by my success or my failure on the basketball course, court or frankly in anything the person who misses that last shot that would have could have brought them to the next round in the tournament can be very easily uh, defined by the people around them as the person who brought the whole thing to a crashing end and what happens when that actually becomes a part of a person's identity you see when we think about our identity it can either bring freedom in our life or it can crush us and imprison us. And so Paul talks in this epistle, this letter on what it means to live with freedom about this whole issue of identity. And it's what he comes to in verse 10. Because it is so easy for us to go one direction or another. And I would really like you to find out where you are this morning. So here's what I would encourage you to do. If you've got a pen or paper or uh, your smartphone or whatever, type in or write down there really three questions. And I've got a whiteboard in front of me. And the, the first one is this. It's who am I? I'd like you to just write that down. Somebody just turned their smartphone on. I heard that. <laughs> and, and, and give yourself some space there. Uh, to, to answer that question, who am I? And the second question I'd like to you to ask is this, is who said so? Right? Who told you who you were? And then there's a third question, and it is this, it's why do you believe it? Right? I'd love for you to think about what the answers are to those questions. Who are you? There are multiple options out there that we're faced with. It's the person who graduates from high school and gets the title most likely to succeed. And that might come as a wonderful honor to start with, but do you see the jeopardy attached to that? I am the one who is most likely to succeed. I better not blow it. What comes as a, starts as a, as a wonderful honor could actually be a curse. Everybody's looking at me now. I better not mess that one up. It happens all over the place. It's the parent who says to one of the kids, you are the most gifted person in our family. Now, 
Now, don't mess that one up. You are the person in our family who will never amount to anything. You don't have to mess that one up. You see, all of these things that we hear, particularly when we're younger and more impressionable, that just kind of stick with us along the way. Someone says, it may be a mentor, it might be a a parent, you are my greatest disappointment. What does that do to a life? The employer who says, you are only as important as last quarter's numbers. And somehow, someway, we get it figured out where we actually attach our identity to that very same thing that that person said. You are employee of the month. Hooray! You got nine more days to enjoy that one. And then it's somebody else. Do you see how easily those kinds, those kinds of things might be? I am the letters behind my name. I know young women who have said, you know what, when I grew up, I discovered that I was my mom's dress-up doll. And what a burden it is to get out from under that when a person grows up and actually discovers that they have different opinions and different goals that don't match the conformity required of being a dress-up doll for their mom's unmet expectations from their own life. Or a son who says, you know what, I am still working my tail off trying to please my dad. And he died years ago. You know those stories. Some of those stories might be yours. When you fill that out, who am I and who said so, you already know what they are. Sometimes we have to dig for them and we might not notice them. There might be other people in our life who notice us when life just gets all sideways and they say, I don't think you realize where your identity is found. You see, the reality of that, these inferior notions of identity, they actually enslave us. And that's what Paul is talking about here when we get to verse 10. He described his identity as a servant of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, doesn't that just sound so ironic that freedom actually is found in slavery? It's the gospel. It turns everything upside down. But that's where we will get if we walk through this clearly enough. Freedom is actually found in an identity that is defined by slavery. And more than that, as we walk into this text this morning, but there it is. Identity determines freedom. Your identity, your sense of of who you are at your core determines whether you're living in the freedom that you were set free to live in. It is for freedom that God has set us free. What does it mean to live in that? So let's look really just at verse 10 this morning, Galatians chapter 1. He asks a series of questions. We've already asked these. Who am I? Who said so? And why do you believe it? He extends this, uh, uh, this, uh, these questions by saying in verse 10, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings, or am I trying to win the approval of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that briefly this morning. This first question Paul asks, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, prompts a question in us. And it is, is, it, it is this, what does it mean to live for God's approval? Does it mean that I must somehow work harder, give more, be more perfect? 
Well, we've already been there. We were there last week when Dory talked to us about the currency of the gospel. And grace is the currency of the gospel. The reason why Paul was so astonished slash upset, uh, angry, was because people had come in and they had just readapted this whole catalog of things one must be or do in order to be accepted by God or in their religious culture. The, the currency of the gospel is grace. You walk in the door and there is no other currency than that. You don't walk in and then get told, well, there are certain things that you've got to buy, work hard enough to earn, merit badges that are necessary for you to stand out in comparison with others. There are no merit badges, badges to buy. There's nothing to be purchased. There's nothing to be earned in the context of the gospel community. You know, I was online and, and read this article from two years ago, actually, and it was in business. It was talking about in-app purchases with apps you, can, you get for free. And iPhone at the time, two years ago, actually two years ago, uh, in, uh, March 2013, they had actually done a, an analysis of how they make most of their income. iPhone was making most of their income on apps through in-app purchases, 71%. Of their revenue came from free apps. Once you get in the door, oh, there's something to buy. And I think we can construe, we can conceive of, we actually create religious places like that. Where you walk in the door and then you discover, in order to really succeed, there's stuff I've got to earn, a marriage badge I've got, badge I've got to acquire, something I must do along the way. And this is what Paul was standing out again. But if we conceive our identity as earning God's approval be, to be accepted by him, we've distorted the gospel when the reality is this, and we know it, there is nothing I can do to cause God to love me more. That's the reality. There is nothing I can do that will cause God to love me more than he does already. Those of you that are parents, certainly dads, you know what this like. You hold your child in your arms for the first time and you say, I love this person. I would give my life for them. And then they grow up and they make mistakes and they, and they blow it and, 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 and dads are still saying the same thing. I don't care whether their whole life has gone sideways. I don't care who they're not pleasing there is nothing I wouldn't do for my daughter, for my son. That, that's the way God made this whole thing to work. To give to a father or mother this passion for a child that has nothing to do, that acceptance has nothing to do with what they've done. Oh, a father has hopes and dreams, a mother has hopes and dreams for their kids. But it's like there's nothing on the line in regards to whether they have their approval and their love. That's just the way it was mean to be. It meant to be. It does, it does mean in my relationship with God the Father that, that I, I long to become the person I was meant to be, but the things that bring joy to God are actually the only thing, are the things that bring to joy to me. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? 
The thing that he wants for me is what I want for myself. And then we both get to enjoy the delight and the, and, and the thrill of those things. This even is in the category of spiritual disciplines. I think it's so easy for us to walk into a religious mix and say, well, here's the stuff you might be in disciplines. Spiritual disciplines can easily sound like that. And I want to talk about this for just a couple minutes because in your small groups this week and at the end of this service, we're going to talk about a spiritual discipline to insert. But don't think it's because it's the way to be a good person rather than a bad person. The value of spiritual disciplines are they're tools that actually help us to become the people we want to be. I mean, think about it in regards to tithing or money, for example. I mean, that could just seem like the ultimate in-app purchase for a church, right? Come in, it's free, but oh, by the way, we're going to pass the offering plate. We're going to check up on you, and there's a certain amount of money that you ought to give. I mean, it can easily become a constraint or requirement, an in-app purchase of some kind. When God's intent was never that for us, he says, here's what I want you to do, Mark. I want you to give a substantial chunk of what it is that you earn with your hands and your lives, and I want you to give it back to me. And it's not because he needs it. He doesn't need it. It's because he knows I need it. I need to recognize the stuff that I have in my hands isn't significant at all in regards to the relationship with the God that holds me in his arms. And me, by giving, by surrendering that stuff, I'm reminded again that I can actually live without the thing that I thought I had to hold so tightly and depend on. And there he is, showing up again and again and again. And just the wonder and the astonishment of a God who provides everything I need. And he cares for me and he shows his power and his capacity. And the way he does it is in this spiritual discipline of giving. But it is not a surprise in that purchase. It is a means by which he allows me to become the person both he and I want to be. That, that's the person, that's the reason God wants us to seek his pleasure. You know, there's a picture that we've used for this actually, and it's a, it's a triangle, and perhaps... You've seen it in the top of the triangle. You can put the Father up there. And um, over on this side, you can put your identity. Just want to double check. Yeah, no, it's not quite there yet. You wonder, what is that guy doing? Just a second here. I, I think we'll see it up there. Something's happening. You can tell something's happening right there. Is it might be my problem. Let me just go and see if I've got the problem. You guys okay with this? It's this whole technology thing, right? It's a beautiful thing, and then it's not. Okay, there we are. So Father at the top of the triangle, and then there's identity uh, uh, to the one side, and then obedience over here, all right? And it's so easy for us in this configuration for us to view God as Father, and the first reaction is, what does he want? What does it mean to obey? And we, we go that way so easily, don't we? What does the authority say I must do and I want to make sure I do it? And so we hear that God is Father and so we have this whole list of things that we ought to do. And how well we do them determines our identity, who we are. If I am particularly good at obeying my Father, I, am a, I, I have my identity established by I'm a really good person. 
the double-edged sword of this is if I blow it, if I fail, if I give in to an impulse or a longing or whatever it is, and I fail, my identity is then defined by that failure as well. And the danger of this is this is striving here. I strive to be, I strive to be a person that's identified by what it is that I do. I can either be a self-righteous, arrogant person because I'm particularly good at obeying, or I can be the scum of the earth because I fail one time after another. This is the law. This is this is this is a this is a a, a a vicious thing that creates in me something God doesn't want from me. It is miles from freedom. Then we look at how was God his father, and we see the example of what he did with his son. And you remember that before Jesus even did anything, it says, before Jesus even did anything at his baptism, he had not done anything in his earthly ministry yet. There's a voice from heaven where the Father tells the Son and all of us who are listening, He says this, This is my Son whom I love. I couldn't be more proud of Him. He's done nothing. But His identity is established before that. And it is His identity. You are my Son whom I love. There's nothing you can do to make me love, more, love you more than I do. That's your identity. The Father wanted it for Christ. God wants it for you. God wants you to know that you are his son, that you are his daughter, and there's nothing you can do that would cause him to love you more than he does. He is absolutely delighted that you're alive. And you see what happens then? That identity leads in this direction, not because I have to, but because it's just who we are. He's my dad. I'm his son. Let's do something together. Do you see the danger? If you go around this counterclockwise, it leads to striving and oppression and imprisonment. And it is so easy to go around the triangle counterclockwise. And what God's longing for you is to know who you are first. To know who you are. And that's why Paul goes on here as he continues this question. And he says this. He says, am I trying to please people? Don't do that. Don't let that be your life. And one asks the question, what is the danger of living for the approval of everything? Of others. What is the danger of living for the approval of others? Is it wise to seek the basis for self-worth from other people. It is not. Just think about it. If my identity is determined by the people, the voices around me, past, present, dead, what it does to my life. You know what I've discovered over time? I've discovered that my mom and dad weren't perfect. And you know what that means? It means the things that they speak into my life, they speak from their own brokenness. Now, you and I, you know, I've talked about the rich gift of my mom and my dad in my life, but they were not perfect people. They were characterized by brokenness as well. And if I decide to take the words from a broken mom or dad 
and use it to determine who I am, I will find myself enslaved by those words. At least by some of them. Unfortunately, the ones I'm too prone to grab and adopt as part of who I am. They're broken people. The other aspect of taking my identity from other people is that their opinions are changing. I mean, this happens. Think about your, your friendship group. I can think of mine. My friendship group in college, you know what? We were absolutely the best at sarcasm. I mean, we were. And if I was going to be accepted by that group, I was going to be the most sarcastic person in the room. That's how you determine whether you were cool or not. How sarcastic can you be? You know what? We eventually decided that was a really bad idea. And you see, our opinions can change as we move through life. And, and, and to take our identity from a group of people whose opinions will certainly change because they always do and use that to form my identity can be devastating for me. It's not only that they're broken and their opinions change, but they will never see my life with clarity. Even if they know my story, even if they know the circumstances that impacted my life, guess what? Same thing can happen to someone else. It, happens, it impacts all of us differently than that. And though you might say, I know your story, and I appreciate that, no one will ever know it completely. There's stuff inside here that's a part of who I am that isn't the same as anyone else. There's only one person in the world that knows what it's done to you. Only one person. And he invites you to be his son or daughter. He invites you into his life. Let me be the one, he says, that tells you who you are. Would you? And so Paul says, I'm not going to live a life trying to please others. This is a toxic choice to do that. Does this give us license not to care about other people, to disregard them? No, of course it doesn't. Part of what brings me joy in my life and brings my father joy is when I see the dignity of other people. Respect it and honor it. Honor your father and mother, he said. Not because they're perfect, but because they're people. And they've been put in a role. Respect them and dignify them for that. And all of the other people that God has made in creation, whether I agree with their views or not, to give them the dignity that they deserve because of who they are. The other part that brings joy to me and joy to my Father is to love people, but not to live to please them in order that my identity is shaped by whether they like me or not. McGee says in his book, Search for Significance, he talks about the approval ad addiction. And he said this, the world we live in is filled with people who demand that we please them in exchange for their approval and acceptance. Such demands often lead us directly to a false belief. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. And that is absolutely dangerous. How are we influenced by others' opinions of us. Who are you? Who said so? And then Paul concludes by saying, if I were to try to please people, I wouldn't be who I am. 
And he describes here clearly who he is. He says, I am a servant of Christ. Brings us to the third question. What is the nature of my core identity? And it is this. I live for an audience of one. Have you heard that phrase? It's a powerful one and it matters here. To live for an audience of one. My core identity is this. To bring joy to my Father. Because I can trust him. And he knows more than my name. He knows who I am. My core identity is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in verse 1. It's again in verse 3. It's in verse 10. And it's connected with this other identifying trait. It's to be a child, a son or daughter of a father in heaven, which we see in verse 3. There's this coexistence of this. There's a father who who knows what's best for me. And he longs for me to obey and to follow him and find my joy, greatest joy, in bringing him joy because it brings joy to me and to the people in my life around me. And God's longing is for us to listen to an audience of one because he knows the result of it. The result of it is it doesn't just help me but watch the lives of the people around those who are living for an audience of one. Watch their capacity to be able to live and care and not be distorted in what they think. Just watch what happens. There's a challenge here. McGee actually says this in his book as well. He says, I don't believe that any of us will gain complete freedom from this tendency we see until until we see the Lord. Our God-given instinct to survive compels us to avoid pain, knowing that rejection and disapproval bring pain. We'll continue our attempts to win the esteem of others whenever possible. But this is a discipline that's valuable for us to move forward in. We need healing from this longing to be defined by what another person thinks of us apart from the one who is in heaven. Let me just mention three implications and encouragements for you as you and I walk from this place and try to live this out. The first is this. Don't take on God's role in other people's lives. That other person, they're trying to live for an audience of one also. Don't add to the audience. Don't don't increase the number in their life. And you know, we can even do this with our kids. We can say to our kids, don't make me mad. Now that works. I, I know that works. But when our kids move from being little kids to becoming adults, For me to be the audience in their life that determines who they are is destructive to their relationship with their father. But it's so easy to be able to do that. You're going to make me mad. Don't disappoint me. That's not the audience that they should live for. And I understand early on there's value in that. But at some point in time, friends, we've just got to say to our kids, it's him. He loves you more than I ever will. And he's worth surrendering to. Listen to what it is that he has to say in your life. Point to Jesus. 
And the same thing is healthy in our church family as well too. For us to scrutinize people as good people or bad people, do you realize that God never gave us that role? In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, they're all growing together. And you know what he says in the parable? He says, don't, don't uproot any of it yet. Because when you try to uproot it, you're going to just mess it up. He doesn't trust us with that role. Instead, he just invites us to live together with other people who have an audience of one and live it best we can. I mean, think about what happens. Imagine what it would have been like if I would have given my life to the Lord as a young man and all of a sudden, all of you, I mean, you weren't there, but all of you just told me, and you got to do this and you got to do this and watch out for this. You know what? God dealt with things in my life in progression. He's dealt with things like lust and anger and jealousy and guilt, all of that stuff. And you know what? He's got a curriculum on my life and he's not done yet. But, but imagine what would have happened if everybody would have come along and said to you, and there are six things you've got to pay attention to right now, rather than just living life together with a God who is at work in our life, and rather than pointing the finger and screaming and saying, good person, bad person, just let's, let's live for him. And let's let him, over time, work on those things. Because he will. Because he will. Don't take on God's role in the lives of others. The second implication is this. Don't make people-pleasing decisions in order to determine your identity. You ask the question, well, Lord, the question should be, Lord, what should I say? Not, what will they think if I say it? That's going to mess you up. What should I walk away from? In spite of the fact that all of my peer group are going to think I'm a fool if I make a decision like that. It's not going to matter because I know who I belong to. Or the question, what will I invest in in my life when everybody else around me has got an opinion, but I go to the Lord and I say, God, what is it you want me to invest in in my life? And then the third implication for this is to strengthen the discipline that actually helps with it. And this is a discipline that is an ancient discipline. It's called the discipline of secrecy. It's engaging in things that would be honoring to God and nobody gets to see me do it. Nobody gets to see it. And I don't craft it in such a way that you think I look good. Dallas Willard has talked about this and he says this, secrecy rightly practiced enables us to place our public relations department entirely in God's hands. We just give him the PR department for our life. And in your small groups, you'll have an opportunity to be able to talk about that triangle we mentioned earlier, but also this discipline. How do I actually engage in the discipline of secrecy so I can focus on the audience of one that was intended for me? You know, there's an interesting, actually a crazy film out there that's had some publicity recently. I think in the Oscars, it was uh, given a some accolades, but it's a brutal film, actually, really. It's the story of a young man whose one goal in life was to have his identity shaped 
by being one of the best drummers in the world. And then there was a person who worked at one of the best music institutes in the United States, perhaps the world. And his goal was to find the person who would be that next best standout artist in the world. And they had a journey together that was chaotic, that was brutal. This professor was offensive and there was carnage left in his wake. And at the end of the film, after this young man performs a drum solo that no one had ever heard before, absolutely extraordinary, this young man smiles at the professor and the professor smiles back at him. And that's the end of it. And you know, it wasn't a happily ever after story because those lives were filled with carnage, lives destroyed, lives destroyed in the wake of a pursuit of an identity that they longed for, but left the two of them alone with each other. And there was nothing pretty about that. And I think, thanks be to God, who invites us in an into an identity that is filled with the freedom of becoming the person he intended us to be without the carnage left behind by all of the other options out there. It is for freedom God has set me free. And God says to you, you are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. I couldn't be more proud of this truth. You're alive, and you're mine. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that you invite us into. God, it just baffles me that we live in a world that defines Christianity and maybe rightly in some places as something that brings such restrictions and such harshness to it when the reality is so completely different than that, God. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to live in the reality of what it means to be set free to belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.